Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to Childless Not By Choice, where my mission is to recognize and speak to the childless, not by choice women and men around the world. Savella Morgan here. I am spreading the great news that we can live a joyful, relevant, and fulfilled life, although we did not have the children we so wanted. Thank you to everyone tuning in, whether childless, not by choice or not. Your tuning in makes you a part of the conversation. So thank you very much. Well, before we continue on here, I have some VIPs to shout out. They are patrons of my Patreon page. And Patreon contributors are those who have taken an interest in my platform, whether they fit the childless, not by choice demographic or not. They have decided to contribute a certain dollar amount on a monthly basis to help maintain our platform and podcast. Click the Patreon link for details to become a patron. And that link is right there in the show notes, patreon.com forward slash childless, not by choice. Thank you to my patrons, Jordan Morgan and Ivy Calhoun. And right below their names is a spot just for you. It says your name here. If you ever have any questions about Patreon, feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is in the show notes. But thank you again so much to Jordan Morgan and Ivy Calhoun for your monthly contributions. It's truly appreciated. Well, on today's episode, we have the awesome opportunity to speak to the wonderful Yvonne John. And I want to tell you a little bit about Yvonne, and then we're going to get going. And I know I'm probably saying her name the American way, and you'll see why I say that in just a minute. (laughs) Yvonne was never sure if she really wanted children, but knew that she was expected to get married and have a family in that order. Somewhere in between her dreams of traveling and experiencing what life had to offer, Yvonne did wish for the perfect family, a husband, and four children. By the time she had reached her 30s, though, this dream had fast lost its momentum. And by then, she had given up on the dream of being a wife and mother. Because of her past, she had decided that it was now time to live by her choices. Yvonne believed that the opportunity to become a mother had passed, so it was time to move on. It wasn't until she met her husband at age 38 that her faith in love was reignited. A year into their marriage, Yvonne and her husband decided to try for a baby, which led to the unexpected sadness that was to follow when Yvonne was informed that she had unexplained infertility. While trying to understand her grief, she was introduced to gateway women where she has been on her journey of forgiveness and renewed self-discovery. Yvonne is the author of Dreaming of a Life Unlived, Intimate Stories and Portraits of Women Without Children, 2016, and has appeared on numerous radio and television programs to talk about her experience of recovering from the grief of involuntary childlessness. Yvonne blogs about this at Finding My Plan B, She is a graduate of Gateway Women, a year-long Plan B mentorship program. Jody Day, founder of Gateway Women, personally invited Yvonne to lead the Reignite Weekends for women of color, having come to understand through many conversations together that there are unique aspects to the women of color experience of childlessness that would be better served in a dedicated workshop. For more information on Yvonne's book, her blog, and platform, please check the show notes. I've put all of her information in there. Please do check it out. 
And Yvonne, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Sevilla, for inviting me. Okay. No, it's, it was so lovely to talk to you. I'm just really glad um, that we had this opportunity. I know that during our pre-interview chat, I realized right away that we had at least one thing in common, mm-hmm. and that is that our families emigrated from the Caribbean. Yeah, mine to the U.S. and yours to England. They, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that was pretty cool. I'm sure like anyone whose family emigrates from another country, you live and to some extent still live with one foot in the old country and one foot in the new country. Tell us a little bit about how that was for you growing up in the United Kingdom. So for me, it's a very interesting reflection, actually. It's something that you grow up in the country you're born in and you don't really think about it too much. And it's kind of the things that I've been looking at more recently and exploring with my parents that I've started to realize how much their values impacted on my growing up. Mm -hmm. I have two brothers. And so for my dad who came over during the Windrush period and for my mum as well, they came to England in the midst of a lot of racism. So no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And I remember my dad especially because his parents died when he was nine so and he came to England when he was 18 so he had this strong sense of what a family life is going to be so he comes to England with all these hopes and dreams a lot of racism that you know people were there saying no constantly saying no to him and he fought a lot to educate himself to buy a home in the area that he wanted to buy a home in because he was told he couldn't do that they were encouraged to buy a home in really rundown parts of South London where I was born and grew up in. But he was like, no, I'm going to buy the home where I want to buy. I'm going to bring up my family in the way I want to bring them up in. So knowing that fight and that struggle, I realised how much pride he had and how much he wanted us to be educated and make sure we had a good life because he went through so much to allow us, to afford us this privilege to be able to be in this country, go to school, get educated, go to university and have a life. So it was a lot of pressure. You know, when you think about it, you can, I can definitely see how much he worked, how hard he worked and how much he wanted this life, this wonderful life for us. But I also see how much pressure it put on us because for one, he didn't understand what we were growing up with. We were now, he grew up in the Caribbean, my parents, both my parents grew up in the Caribbean. My dad from Dominica, my mum from Trinidad. Mm. And the educational system will be very different from what I knew. And also, I was amongst white people where he wasn't. So automatically, there is a difference in what we're doing, what we're experiencing as children. And that's something he probably didn't fully understand and couldn't fully equip us for. So then we're trying to fit in, trying to fit in into this world. So no matter what they're telling us, and China is still on us, we're resisting that as well because we want to fit in to where we're at. You know, we want to fit in with our white friends. We want to be seen as the same. So it was quite difficult because then you're battling. It's like you said before, you've got one foot in the Caribbean, in the old country, one foot in where we're at now. But there's like this constant battle with us as children as, and growing into young adults, into teenagers, into young adults, that we want to have a life that we want, not the life that they wanted us to have. So, yeah, you know, it was a struggle and it wasn't a struggle to say we had such a bad upbringing. It was just a struggle to say we wanted our own identity 
And it was really difficult to find that. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not a struggle out of being disrespectful. It's a struggle that, because I completely understand and agree with what you're saying. Even though my parents came to the U.S., they came from St. Kitts, Nevis. And I was actually born in St. Kitts, but they brought me here when I was four. And uh, so I grew up in Massachusetts, in New England, totally. I mean, they moved from the sunny, hot Caribbean islands to the frigid north. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, what possessed them? And then we have to grow up with, yeah, white children, Hispanic children, and totally different way than they grew up, totally different education experience than they had. I mean, the Caribbean, for all intents and purposes, I'm assuming it's still this way, the um, literacy rate is probably 98% or something. I okay. Okay. You know, it's t- but still here, the education was different, the teaching was different, and then just trying to get them to understand that things were different, trying, like you said, to fit in, because who doesn't want to fit in, especially as a kid? You, wanna, yeah. you don't want to yeah. stand out like a sore thumb, but I did. <laughs> well, this is it. It's so true. And the other thing to that as well was the fact that, actually, I mean, I, the stories I remember my mom telling me, I was like, oh my God, you guys were strict over mm-hmm. there. Because even things like if you fail exams, you're not going into next year. See, you know, there was a better driving force for the kids over there because you start school with your friends and you're you're failing exams. You're getting left behind. They're going up. Who wants that? You know, and the teachers also, you know, they're black teachers. They want to see the best out of their black students. We, on the other hand, we weren't being pushed and encouraged by our teachers. They would, you know, we were being kept down. You'd have to be exceptional to be, you know, we had a streaming system and you'd have to be ex- exceptional to be in the top streams. I was middle of the road. My older brother, who's a year older than me, was lower than me. And there wasn't that drive to push us forward. There wasn't that drive for greatness. It was basically, I could see they were doing a lot of things to keep us down mm-hmm. and not kind of encourage us to be anything better than whatever they saw we were. You know, I I even remember at one careers day, I was told, I was asked, have you ever considered being a shop assistant? And my report said I wouldn't achieve anything. I wanted to go to sixth form college. I didn't get in because they didn't think I was good enough to do A-levels. There was, I have many stories, many examples of the system saying that I wasn't good enough. Right. You know, and if it wasn't for my dad who kept pushing and pushing because he wasn't going to have his children not go to university, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, my dad pushed us too. And I actually got my bachelor's and my master's degree later in life because of the fact that I, I thought he was finished pushing me because I had finally obtained a position at a job where I thought I'd be forever. And it was a very good job. It was a job that required licensing and all of that great stuff. And I thought I was good. And then I got laid off after 11 years. (laughs) And he made a comment that, huh, you never finish anything that you start. And that cut me to the quick (laughs) because it's not true. (laughs) I'm thinking that's not true. And, but it was the thing that, and uh, something my sister-in-law said that she said, well, whether you, you go back or not, the time will pass by. And you know, people say things and you, they don't realize what they're saying that causes you to make a decision. And that's what sent me right back to my 
my bachelor's degree. And then after I got my bachelor's, my dad said, well, you know, a bachelor's degree is just like a high school degree. <laughs> <laughs> He was letting you up. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> I went back and got my master's degree. So I now have a master's degree. And uh, I was just like, this man, and I, if he had his way, I'd have a doctorate. But I said, absolutely not. I'm done. You have to draw the line, right? Yeah. I drew the line at master's. And, and I'm, you know, I'm glad he said it, though, because I know he said it out of love. And yes. so I'm glad he said it, but I know that a big part of me taking so long to get there was my experiences in school as a child. Mm -hmm. And in particular with a, an experience I had in, I think, second or third grade with math. And math became the monkey on my back up until it just wasn't. When I finally got the help I needed to pass the classes to get my bachelor's degree, that's when math was no longer the monkey right. on my back. But those experiences, as you mentioned, as a child, they were happening here too. You know, second grade and on, that math was there. It was, I was a failure, a math failure. And you know, as I look back, of course, that was not the truth. It's not mm -hmm. true, but that's what I was led to believe. And yeah. my parents didn't know, they didn't understand, and they didn't realize what was happening because they, when they were sent to school in the Caribbean, you're sent to school, your teachers care, they wrap yeah. you on the knuckles if you don't behave or if you don't remember what they just told you. They were all in. But yeah. here, and we're not trying to denigrate the UK or the US, but the bottom line is it's a different system. There is racism, whether people want to face it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to push through the people that they think that need to be pushed through when the fact is many of us learn in different ways and we're not taught in different ways. We're all taught the Absolutely. same way. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, very similar experiences, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And for the Windrush information, for those of you listening, I put a little clip in there of what the Windrush generation was all about. So again, please do check out the show notes because that information is in there. It's a couple paragraphs and it's very interesting. I was trying to think of what that would equate to here in the US, but I'm not sure of a terminology that it would equate to. But it's great information, so please be sure to check out the show notes for that information. Yeah, so as we continue on here, though, your workshop, you have the workshop, which I mentioned in your intro. It's geared toward the childless, not-by-choice women of color. You said it was created because we do have what I believe is cultural circumstances around not being able to have children, whether it's Caribbean or American or no matter where in the world Black people are, I think it's a cultural thing that runs through all of us. And so the cultural issues we have to deal with are probably the main reason we hide our childlessness. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just recently, I'm sure you heard about Michelle Obama finally coming out and saying, I never knew this, you know, but she said recently that not being more open about the struggle with infertility and miscarriage was, you know, it got a hold of her until she put it in her book. So how do you think we can fix this? How do we keep a quote unquote happy medium between talking about our struggle and oversharing? We have to take away the shame of talking because what, and that comes in many different guises and forms it's really interesting because the more I talk about it with black women, the more I'm realizing about my own experiences that I didn't quite realize <laughs> that 
this silence us, this holds us back. And there, there are common threads. I mean, I remember when Sir Jodie Day had asked me, Yvonne, why don't black women talk to me? What's going on? And she goes, I know black women do talk because you're talking to me. There are other black women and other Asian women within the gateway community. But there's so few of us that there's got to be more. What's going on? And I really thought about this because up until then, I, I just thought, whoa, hang on. I'm, I'm a black woman. Yes, I'm grieving my childlessness. I'm in gateway women and there are other women grieving their childlessness. I don't understand the difference. I didn't see myself as any different until I started to think about it. And then I talked to some other friends that I know who are childless, other black friends for different reasons. And it really started to open up the conversation and my thoughts around what is going on. So one of the things, I mean, it all still stems back from our childhood, our parents' childhood, our parents' parents' childhood, and all the cultural conditioning that happens. But we grow up with this sense of, and actually our parents are telling us this, do not bring shame on the family. Right. You don't talk about your problems outside of the family. And actually, half of us are not even talking about our problems within the family. <laughs> because there is a lot of shaming and silencing around this. And, and the language we use does that. It's something I try to explore with my parents. And, and I'm not sure if they quite got it. But it's something that I realised for myself. When you hear, don't bring shame on the family. And don't talk about your business outside of the family. You're not going to openly want to go and talk to other people about it. You do think twice. Now, yes, there are black people that are talking, there are black people who are very vocal, but they are exceptions. Because when I'm doing what I'm doing and speaking to the women and I'm speaking to, I realise how brave and exceptional women like me, like you, who are talking about this, who are breaking taboos are. And I've been criticised for doing that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is so interesting, you know. And also, one of the things that I've realised when I'm exploring this is that in all of this keep it in the family terminology we also then turn to church because religion plays a big part in the black community right and we're going to talk about that later <laughs> come into that <laughs> but therefore when you put that into it as well why do i need to talk about my problems why do i need to talk about anything because i can take it all to god mm. so there are so many things so many layers to this that stops us from being open, as open and honest as we should be. Because when we are open and honest, so much happens. It's so powerful, but we just don't see it like that. And we've never been kind of allowed to see it like that because that's not our language. Yeah, I call it facing the monster. And, you know, if you face the monster, you realize it's not as big and ugly and scary as you think it is. In my bedroom as a little kid, there was a door because I had a, my room was in the attic. And I don't know, some of you may understand, it's like the part above the house, that's like the eaves of the house. So it's the, it's a sloping roof. And that's where my room was. I wanted my own room. And I begged for it until I got it. And it was in the attic. But there was a closet there where the door never stayed shut. It always was slightly open, no matter how many times you shut it. And at night, it looked scary. And Mm -hmm. One day I went in and opened the door and I looked in and I was no longer afraid of what I thought was in the closet as a kid. And that's the same here. If you face the monster by talking about it, you no longer feel afraid 
and alone. Yeah, that's really, I like the way that's how you've put that. Because I remember the, one of the first things I felt when I went to Gateway and I was amongst all these women and I was talking about my experiences, it normalized everything I was right. going through. Right. Because I, up until then, I felt like the crazy woman that had the evil thoughts in my head and I wasn't allowed to speak them because you try to speak about it. It's really hard not to say anything at all. But the few experiences you have of trying to talk about it, somebody will try and fix it or shut you down because, you know, it's the fixing is, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. Don't give up hope. Oh, no. You could always adopt. You could always try IVF. There's always something around. Pray more. (laughs) Yes. oh my gosh have, you know oh my goodness <laughs> no we'll but, get to that in a minute <laughs> but, <I'm> like, <laughs> but all of that all the stories people place onto you is part of the silencing and, and also the shaming because then all of a sudden you're like oh I shouldn't feel like this then and you also get no you shouldn't feel like that so when you're in that camp it's really really hard to talk about it because as soon as you try somebody silences you by trying to fix it for you and also that you shouldn't feel like that shames the thoughts that you have. So you don't feel normal. You really feel like you're going crazy. You feel like it's wrong. All the negative things that can come up with that, it stops you from then being honest about this. Now, when you're in this environment where people understand it, they get it, they've been through it, all of a sudden, you're okay. You're normal. It's okay to feel like that. And then actually you can find whatever solution you want to find within that, because it's okay. No one's trying to fix you and no one's trying to shut you down. It's about it being allowed and being heard and being understood. I love that. No one's trying to fix you and no one's trying to shut you down. I love that. And it's true. And that's why all of us, whether it's you, me, Jody, and all of the other women who've created platforms, we're doing everything we can every day to get the word out that mm we're not crazy. And uh, it's okay to wonder why not me and uh, fight fear and envy and shame and hate and dread and everything that comes with not being able to have the children that you so wanted. So I'm really, Mm -hmm. really, really happy about the fact that there are more and more people talking about it. And I'm so elated to know that Michelle Obama is talking about it because she has one of the biggest platforms on the planet, even though she's no longer the first lady of the United States. It's still a big platform she's on. So I'm so glad that she Mm -hmm. talked about this. And this kind Mm -hmm. of leads into my next question, which I guess maybe we kind of answered, but why do you think black women are not more supportive and edifying of each other, which can lead to the hiding of the feelings and doesn't allow for honesty? I think it's an extension of the don't bring shame on the family. And when we're so ingrained in that mindset, and again, I mentioned the fact that once you turn it to God, why do I have to talk about it? So when you're really ingrained in all of that, what I found is that women then are not, I don't know if it's not able to or don't want to deal with the grief. Hmm. So therefore me going, oh, look, this is the grief in all its glory means they have to think about it and identify it and they don't they don't want it they want to shut that down and it's almost like why are you bringing this to the forum when it doesn't need to be brought to the forum 
We just need to be quiet, be on our knees, just pray, and it will all be okay. And that gives everybody else the opportunity to look the other way. It does. It does. Which is a shame. It's Mm -hmm. such a shame. I remember hearing, you know what, it's all in God's hands and he knows what he's doing. And I thought it was the worst thing somebody could have ever said to me. And I just cried because I felt like, why wasn't I good enough? Why didn't God think I was good enough to be a mum? Right. If it's it's so in his hands, well, then what's the reason? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't believe that. I don't buy into that terminology in that language it's not what I would use and but I do understand why women other people do buy into it because actually it's easier to be there than it is to deal with the grief you know it's a brave and incredibly courageous thing to do to face your grief and Mm -hmm. and work with it it is and you know the bottom line is whether one is a believer or not it rains on the just and the unjust and Mm -hmm. life happens and no one gets every single thing that they want out of life. I don't care who you are. You're not going to get everything. And so there are going to be some issues. And I think once we realize that no matter what beautiful pictures people post on Instagram, look at again, back to Michelle Obama, look at how perfect we thought everything was with her, with her marriage, with her having to go to counseling, with her infertility. You know, all the things she was battling and as a black woman battling racism as far up as in the upper echelons as she got. I mean, as a black person, we all know that we're always going to fight racism no matter how far we go. But anyway, the bottom line is that it's life and not not everybody's going to get everything, but it's how we deal with it that matters and counts and keeps our sanity. It is. It is. It's interesting you're saying about Michelle, because I heard about it two days ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I haven't heard the whole story in its entirety, but I had heard about the problems with conceiving and the fact that she'd gone through IVF. And I remember just hearing what you've just said. I remember my, I was talking to my brother recently and I was telling him some things that I'm going through. And he was like, oh my God, I didn't realize, you know, I thought it was just me. And I said, everybody's going through something. It's just whether they want to tell you mm-hmm. about it or not. So and true. I think it's such a freeing experience. I mean, it's freeing for me to be able to talk. You know, it's not everyone and anyone I will talk to because I tell a version of my story to this person and a different version of this to this person. Right. But because I've owned that, I can do it. Before, I wouldn't say anything because I hadn't owned any of it. And telling my story was such a powerful and empowering experience that it now allows me to be able to, as I said, share with this person, share this version with that one, share whatever version I want with you because I have control of that. And in doing that, I also see how much permission it gives other people to now talk because I'm being honest. People can be honest too. You faced the monster. Yes, I did. I did. Oh, that was a big one. (laughs) Yes. So it took me 10 years of going to the bathroom, which would for most people take maybe what, two, three minutes. And when it's that time of the month for me, it took 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes because of the absolute mayhem that was sometimes happening. 
and mm-hmm. you have friends awaiting to go to lunch and you're on the clock, you've got to get back from lunch by a certain time and you're spending a quarter of your hour in the bathroom trying to fix the mayhem. 10 years of that and not telling even my very good friends and not discussing it with anybody until I just couldn't take it anymore and had the hysterectomy and then started the platform. So imagine a decade of secrecy and they probably knew something was wrong, but I didn't bring it up. So they weren't going to bring it up. And uh, yeah, I felt like I was under some kind of, I was in, for lack of a better term, in a sort of self-imposed prison, Mm. you know, because I was not talking and I was in shame and I was having surgeries, three myomectomies before I had my hysterectomy and always out of work for six weeks at a time after each surgery Mm -hmm. over the course of 10 years and not saying a word to anybody. So I understand the freeing aspect of finally talking about it. Now nobody can hold anything over me. Yes. That's, oh my gosh. (laughs) That's exactly how I felt when I first told my story. Mm -hmm. It was exactly that because I was so ashamed of having my terminations in my Mm twenties and you're so alone with it. You know, that silence, you're alone. I, you could fool yourself into thinking that God's going to deal with it. God's got a plan for me. God's whatever, whatever language you use for it. I think it's a false sense of security mm-hmm. because I, and, and I've been there. I was in a charismatic church for over 10 years. So I do understand it. I understand the language. I lived that life, but it gave me no security, no sense of worth nothing it didn't because it as as quickly as I was there was as quickly as it fell apart so for me now I had part of my story is that in my 20s early 20s and late 20s I had determination now I wasn't in a relationship so it was very very hard very shameful (laughs) and I don't call it that anymore but for me at that time it was a very shameful experience that Once I had done it, I locked it away in my deepest, darkest closet and it was never going to come out again. Now, as simple as that sounds, you can't do that because there's always something there to remind you. There's always something there that pulls. It's almost like someone has found the key to that closet and is turning it trying to get in. So it is always there. And I remember when I went to church, when I first went to church, I was at a very, very low point in my life. And I got to this point feeling like (laughs) I sucked at making decisions. My life was just really, really crap. And I had had enough. And I just didn't know what to do anymore. So I went to a charismatic church and, you know, God will take away your sins. They're all in the past you're all born again and you're all new now it was great this is what i needed to hear so i just jumped right in i was part of the choir i became you know i became a serving member of the church i was very active and for a while for a very good while i was there i think about 10 years maybe 15 years i can't remember now but for most of that time it was great It was great. I was in the ministry. I was out evangelizing. I was going into prisons evangelizing. I was there. And I remember it's almost like it all came crashing down around me. 
in the end a lot of things were happening and it really I really started to question some things and then I started to get rejected I mean if I look back that I was being rejected anyway there was things that I tried to be a part of or tried to do and they were putting me down because you know that I wasn't good enough I wasn't good enough to sing the solo I wasn't good enough to to lead a presentation there was many examples of me being put down but then the ultimate thing was then I just couldn't stay anymore and when I left or when I decided to leave I had a lot of criticism around it well let me ask you a question here let me sorry to cut you off but did they know about the termination is that why or was it just pettiness and no it's just pettiness I can't remember when I first went because I'm sure a couple of people would have known I just can't remember around who knew and and what but when it came to what was going on it, it was just pettiness I think there's a lot of I want to say grooming <laughs> because you know there's people in leadership roles but they do groom them to be in there I think there's a lot of you know you're in that position because of whatever they trust you they see you following them enough or you know there's so many things and I'm not saying this to criticize the church I'm saying this because this is my experience right and this is why I'm here today. And this is one of the reasons why I do speak up about it. And this is part of my story is because I had a lot of negativity when I was in that environment. Now, I remember one time I did speak up. I did ask a question. I wanted to, I would have loved to have sung a solo. I'm an, an okay singer. I wouldn't say I, I'm not Whitney Houston by any means, <laughs> but I can hold a tune. But when you're there, the experience of it all and the emotions that you go through, I really wanted to really fully engage with that. And I would have, as I said, I would have loved to have a lead. And I remember we were having a rehearsal. And then prior to that, I had asked, I was a female tenor. And I'd asked, why is it female tenors don't ever get a lead? It's always altos or sopranos. Even the male sopranos would get leads. And, you know, so we were always overlooked. So I, I asked this question. And then during a the rehearsal, there's about, 60 of us I think in singers in the choir and we were rehearsing a song and they went through every single person and asked to take a lead you try this lead you try this lead you try this lead and they ended the rehearsal with me being the only person that wasn't asked Mm. and then the choir leader came up to me and said you see God uses everybody what does that mean I just went home and cried no, I can't even explain it to you. All I know is I heard, except me, given that he, they'd gone through. I mean, he was choosing them. So I don't know why God had any part in this because he was choosing the people. But, you know, he chose everybody except for me. And I just went home feeling like God doesn't love me. I'm just not good enough. You see, the thing is, though, that, and you know, I'm a church girl. I'm very much involved in my church, and I'm actually a preacher's kid. So I was, you know, born into the church, but I didn't get saved, become a Christian until I was about 14, and that's when I was baptized. And I would say I didn't start my relationship, because for me, it's relationship, not religion. And there are a lot of people that are just doing religion in church. And you can tell who they are by comments like that, because that's not a comment that Jesus would make. And so that's how Mm -hmm. I live my life, by what 
you know, they had the little bracelets and things, WWJD, hashtag WWJD, what would Jesus do? Oh, I had those. Yeah, you know, those were like a big thing a few years ago, but that's how I live my life even today. And if you say Mm -hmm. something to me in church, that's not something that Jesus would say, then I'm not judging you. It's between you and God, but I know that that's not something Jesus would say. So you might have to check yourself and see if you're in religion mode or relationship mode. And so that's how I deal with church folk. I call them church folk Mm -hmm. because I grew up with these people. (laughs) I grew up with church folk. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I know the tactics and I know that not everybody in church is there for the same reason. And I'm not trying to denigrate or knock church. I'm just saying that what they say, what people say, church is a hospital. So there are all types of people in there. And some churches, you're going to have to know that not everybody's on the same level. Even people in certain leadership, like the the worship leader, he had no right to say that. He had no right to say that to you. And so that's something that God is going to have to deal with him with. I mean, I've gone to churches after my dad retired I was under his leadership for the first 40 years of my life. So imagine when he retired, I didn't want to join the church that he had blended his congregation with because I didn't want to be in a Caribbean congregation. Sorry, guys, if any of you are listening. or <laughs> I'm sorry, I just didn't. I would have preferred a, a quote-unquote multicultural type church. So I went looking and I found one and I was there for four years. But I remember one time the worship leader saying, we were waiting to get started, and there were two girls that they were waiting on, and when they showed up, the worship leader said, oh, here they come, here come our singers. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at my friend that we were sitting there looking at each other like, oh, so I wonder who we are. (laughs) 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 If here come your singers, what are we? Because we're all part of the choir, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an interesting comment. But I just believe that people like that, you're not going to keep me from my relationship with God. There's no way. You're going to have to deal with whatever you're dealing with on your own. I'm going to keep doing the best that I can. (laughs) You can just take a hike because I have a relationship. And I'm not saying that to say that I'm better than they are. They just no. need more growth. They need more time in, you know, in their Bible or whatever. But I can't see to them. I got to see about my salvation. Yeah. And so that's how I deal with church folk and just try to make sure. And, and I, I saw nothing wrong with your question. I think that was a good question. Because yeah. if you weren't getting parts and that was petty. That was really petty, you know, and that's, it is heartbreaking to hear stories like that. Yeah. It's very heartbreaking. And then so many people have been treated like that in church and, yeah. and it's what we call church hurt. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good hurt. You know, it's so many people have been through church hurt and it's, it's really unfortunate, but we have to decide for ourselves that we want a relationship with God and we're going to have to do what we can for ourselves to have that relationship and not allow anybody else to have a say in that relationship. Yeah. That's how I see it. I mean, I think you've made some really important points there and I think there's some things you've put really nicely and I completely agree with the relationship with God 
Mm-hmm. I, when I left church, I mean, I had a similar experience in respect to what was I then? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I remember I was a good friend, so I thought with somebody, and when they got engaged, they turned around and said, oh, they, they are now blessed. Mm-mm. I was like, what? <laughs> Hang on, we've been really good friends for like four or five years, and, and now you're blessed? That's, that's so too bad. It, <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of and it hurts it yeah. does hurt because you are investing in something and you believe in something and you, you do you put your heart and soul in it mm-hmm. and to hear those words and I think some people I understand what they're saying and why they're saying it but they don't realize the damage they're causing right because right. there isn't any thought it's very easy to say oh I've got this I'm blessed now God is so good but you are always blessed exactly and, you know, I went on this massive journey when I left that environment because I got hurt a lot and from more than one person. And I really wanted to understand that and why this happened. Because also part of it was how did I allow this to happen? So I needed to understand so much on so many different levels. And so I developed my own understanding and relationship with God, mm-hmm. which isn't what I would find in a traditional sense anymore so I couldn't go to a traditional church and hear traditional teachings and be comfortable with that because that's not what I believe anymore but I think within all of this it's about us being able to allow all of these things because we're different people I have there's reasons why I believe what I believe Mm -hmm. and I've gone through things to get here just like you have gone through so for me to say what you're saying is wrong Right. is wrong in itself right you know and i've i've come across a lot of people who would criticize me even to, to this day they'll criticize me they'll put me down they'll tell me i'm wrong but they don't know what i've gone through to come here to stand here today and say <laughs> what i'm saying oh which goodness. angers me i get so angry about it because i'm like but you don't know me you don't know why i've come to this conclusion and i think that's such a shame in itself yes i totally agree because I mean, we can get all psychological, but everybody is doing life through the filter of their experiences. And we're doing, I think most of us are doing the best we can with life and with the journey we're on. And so as in my case, for instance, a Christian woman who is very much involved with my local church for about 10 years now, I know that the filter of my experience is my childlessness and how much I prayed and begged God to answer my prayers. And uh, why didn't he answer me, but he answered somebody else? Why is this woman coming through the door with twins? And he never answered my prayers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided I had to make the decision, which I said earlier, I didn't really have a relationship with God until my 30s, although I grew up and was born into a Christian home and a preacher's home. It wasn't until my 30s that I had to make the concerted effort and decision that I wanted to lead a life of relationship with God, with Jesus, with God. I had to make that decision. I mean, I had to literally weigh the pros and cons and decided to go ahead and have a relationship with him. But my relationship with him doesn't necessarily include oh, it's necessarily all in God's hands and 
you know, all the things that people say, it wasn't in his yeah. plan. I've been told that. It, how do you yeah. know what God's plan is, by the way? <laughs> Who are you? Because just the way he speaks to you, he can speak to me. So how yeah. do you know what's in his plan for me? And so I understand, you know, the hurtful words that people say that sometimes they mean it, sometimes they don't. But yeah. I think in the church that we need to stop with this, oh, it's in God's plan and uh, just let him just pray more. And you didn't pray enough. You should have fasted some more. And all of the things that people come up with, just stop it. Mm. Stop it and take a look at the fact that you have women in your pews who are childless, not by choice and start from there. Yeah. You know, it's, oh my goodness, <laughs> it's just reminded me of so much. Well, make me start preaching. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you, sister. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I tell you, I, when I hear this, it reminds me of how much it silences us. Because, and I have been angered so much when I hear it's in God's plan. Because I remember all the stuff I went through in my 20s, the relationships the horrible experiences the terminations i'm so angry about that or i was sorry i mean now it's a, i'm in a very different place but those when i hear that comment when i hear that term it's all in god's hands it sends me back to all the anger i felt mm-hmm. in my 20s and i sit there going well why would he allow me to go through this i begged him mm-hmm. i begged him i was on my knees in tears begging him not to have to go through a termination but yet I went through a termination mm-hmm. twice yeah I know people will be out there going well that was your silly fault then you know you got yourself there but we all get ourselves somewhere oh, because yeah. we are constantly making decisions we are constantly going hmm, I'm going to turn left or turn right or whatever it is and guess what God gave us the ability to make these decisions free will he gave so us free will And I do not believe he will punish us for them because that's what he gave us. That's the gift, one of the gifts he gave us. So I struggle. And when I came out and went on my journey, I started to struggle with all these terms, with people being around me telling me, yes, it's in God's will. You didn't have enough faith, blah, blah, blah. Oh my goodness. You know, because it's so not true. And I think when we start keeping it in that arena, we stop talking and we stop being honest. But when we're honest and open, we can work through, we can have a a deeper level of understanding. We can work through the grief. We can work through the pain. We can offer a better degree of support than we would ever do by saying it's all in God's hands. I believe that. I agree with that because even through my childlessness, I believe that I am in God's hands. Mm. And so because I am in his hands, then whatever I deal with and go through and whatever I did not get out of life, then he knows it. He knows about it because he has me in his hands, mm-hmm. it, which leads right back to it rains on the just and the unjust. And mm-hmm. we're not going to end up having children just because we're Christians. There are non-Christians and Christians who are dealing with infertility. So Absolutely. I mean, hoping that makes sense. It's not about just my situation being in his, in his hands and my childlessness being in his hands. Mm-hmm. It's that he has me in his hands and that whatever my journey is, which happens to be being childless and husbandless, mm-hmm. then 
he's got all that. He's taking care of all of that, but he's taking care of me through it because life is happening whether yeah. we want it to or not. It's life. It's part yeah. of life. And so, I, again, I think we really do need to have a, a greater understanding within the church. And that takes learning and, uh, you know, for those who are Christians, digging into the word and, you know, stop telling people foolishness and get into the word and learn it the way you should be learning it so you know how to talk to people because mm. there are all types of people sitting in the pews. But it's also about not holding the judgment. And don't judge. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment within all of that as well. And I think you just need to hear or listen Mm -hmm. without the judgment. And I think that's a powerful thing in itself. Yeah, it is very powerful. And uh, I think that's maturity. And not everybody in church has the same maturity. So it comes, not judging people comes with being mature in your belief and your faith and loving people through what they've gone through. Because I'm here to tell you that those of us who said, oh, I'll never do that, it's that very thing that we've done. I think that people really, really need to be truthful with themselves and stop talking foolishness to those of us who are going through. That's my feeling on all of that. But so basically on that last question, childless, I think we, we pretty much covered it. But one thing I wanted to say, and I know we've talked about it before, is that being childless is not an illness. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be prayed for like we're sick. We need to be praying, being prayed for that, yeah, if we're to have the children, we will. Some people will have to wait. I know one woman who waited 20 years to have a child. Yeah. I mean, it will happen. And for some of us, it will never happen. But pray for us then. If you want to pray, pray for peace on our journey. And That's, stop praying for us like we're sick. Because we're not sick. Yeah. That, that <laughs> is, oh my goodness, that is very well put. I've not heard it said like that before. And, and, and I really love that because it's true. it's true. I remember somebody hearing my story turn around and said, I'll pray for you. I went, what for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me what you're praying for me for, please. You know. And it was to have that child. You know, oh, so you'll have a child. And I was at this place where I'm not going to have it. I'd already, part of this journey is also making peace with the decision to stop trying. Oh my gosh, that's a whole nother conversation. Oh my goodness. And we need to be able to do that because, you know, I was talking to someone today, I was having a group session with some ladies of some black women. And one of the ladies mentioned the fact that she had a breakdown after the years and years of trying IVF, the this, the this, the this. And I've even got an Asian friend that told me who'd been trying 15 years, three rounds, I think of IVF. She had donor eggs. And she said to me, Yvonne, there's a time when you have to say enough is enough. Yes. And the only way we can preserve our sanity is by saying, no, I'm going to stop now because we have to do that. And people don't get that either. It's almost like you didn't want it enough because you stopped. Right. So to hear, you know, okay, I'll pray for you to have a baby when you've come to this place where you're making peace with that decision, because that's huge. I battled with the notion of, did I want it enough? Did I really want to be a mum? Because I didn't try the IVF. I didn't try adoption. I didn't go abroad. I didn't try donor eggs. I didn't try donor sperm. (laughs) I battled with it all just to be able to say, no, I'm okay. 
this is my decision and I'm happy with it. And that's why it was 10 years for me. It was a 10 year wait for Mr. Right to show up. And then as I got closer to the end of where things were just getting generally very, very bad for me physically, trying to check into adoption twice and those not working out. And when I finally made the decision that November day in 2011 to schedule my hysterectomy for that December, the next month, I fought myself for an entire month. Did I make the right decision? Should I hang on any longer, uh, a little bit longer? Mm -hmm. 10 years? No. I finally told myself, look, if you were supposed to meet Mr. Wright and get married and have kids, you had 10 years to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I kept the appointment, but it was such a battle to keep that appointment. And this is what people don't understand. And it is about your sanity because Mm -hmm. I could have kept on and kept having accidents every month, like a little girl Mm -hmm. seeing her period for the first time. You know, I'm, I'm a grown woman and having accidents almost every month, no matter what I do because of these fibroids. And then when I finally have the surgery, he has the nerve, my doctor, to show me the picture and says, I can't even tell which one is the, fi- what's the fibroid and what's your uterus. I'm like, oh, thank wow. you for showing me that picture because I could have lived my entire life without seeing it. But thanks for sharing. <laughs> You know, so it's like, it's a battle to come to the decision. And for those who are married, it could cost a marriage. I mean, come on, people. And the one thing I always say is, I am not going to tell you when to make the decision to stop. That's nobody's decision but yours. But once you make it, and you know you've made it for yourself, nobody can Mm -hmm. undo it. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's how that is. But anyway, that's why I said that's a whole nother conversation. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh my goodness. But as we close out here, I wanted to pivot a little bit. And speaking of hysterectomy, <laughs> are you still planning on scheduling one for yourself? And I would like the, the women who are considering or have already scheduled their hysterectomy to hear what you plan to do as far as writing that goodbye letter. Can you tell us the process of that? And For those of us who've already had our hysterectomy, is it too late to say goodbye? That's a long question, but yeah. So the decision to have a hysterectomy is big, as you Mm -hmm. know yourself, and I would never underestimate it. I don't think I thought about it too much before, but being offered the opportunity, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've realized how difficult it is to make this decision. Now, I have fibroids and I more recently found out I have adenomyosis mm-hmm. and hysterectomy is actually the only cure for adenomyosis. So this is the cause of my very heavy, painful periods. And I completely understand your accidents because I have them too. I get very anxious now because I can be in long meetings and that's not pleasant because mm-hmm. all you're thinking about is have I leaked and can't function because of the pain. So but then sitting in front of a consultant saying, actually, I had the option of a myomectomy, but being told actually it wouldn't work for me. And being told that your only option is to have a hysterectomy is, was devastating, absolutely devastating. And it wasn't until a friend turned around to me and said, maybe it's about thinking about getting rid of the pain and not losing part of your womanhood. And that really, I stopped to think about it. It really forced me to think about the advantage it would give me if I did this. Now, it's not to say I wasn't sad. It's not to say I didn't cry because I still 
cry about it. I still think about what do I really want to do. And I have come to the decision that it probably is best for me to do this. I'm kind of 90% sure I'm going to do it. So what I did was I wrote a letter to my womb. When I was going through my grief, Jodie had us as a group write a letter to our unborn children. And it was a letter to say goodbye. So we acknowledged the fact that we really loved these children. We, we read out the names that we had for the children, the dreams, the hopes, everything that we could possibly do. Put in that letter, we put in that letter so we could say goodbye. So I did that for my womb. And I told my womb how angry I was at her because she's let me down so many times. She let me get pregnant when I didn't want to get pregnant. She didn't let me get pregnant when I really wanted to get pregnant with my husband. She gives me pain every month. You know, when I think of my womb, I just think of pain and sadness and distress. Mm. So I wrote that down because I needed to tell her how much I was, how angry I was with her. And it was great to be able to do it. And I resisted it for ages. You know, when we say these things, it's easy for us to sit here now and go, yeah, we did this, we did this, we did this. But we took time to do it. We went through such a process. We cried or we didn't cry because we avoided it for so long. And with this, I avoided it. I would be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I wouldn't do it. and, And then when I tried to do it, I couldn't. It was like there was a block. And I was away recently. I was on my own and I sat in my hotel room. I sat on the windowsill with a beautiful view. And I wrote that letter. And I cried and I cried, but I wrote that letter. and. It was great to be able to, in a way, let it go. I can't say I fully let it go as yet because I'm not at the end of this, but it was a way to start letting go, to start feeling it and to start grieving and allow that grief. And just to answer your question about people who have already gone gone through it, it's not too late Mm. because there is still a grief, there's still a pain, there's still something you might have regretted in maybe being too quick with the decision, making the decision at all, whatever it is, but you can sit down and write it. To find yourself the space, light a candle, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, write that letter. But just have something good for you afterwards, whether it's running the bath, having a glass of wine, have something that will just counteract, just to look after yourself, give yourself some self-compassion because that's going to be really important part of this as well. But it's, you know, I can't underestimate in any way how powerful it is to be able to do that because it's something, is honouring that part of you as well. Well, the fact that you say it's honouring, that's because I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not ready. I'm, not, I'm just not ready to write that letter. I'm sorry, it's been what, 2011 what is that, four years, five years? And, and I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I don't think I'm ready to write that letter. But you just said the word honoring. And as women, we know that we're known as the carriers of our race. And we have a body part that, you know, that was created to allow us to do that. And that's a big thing. Mm. And so if that has to be removed, mm-hmm. then it should be honored, you know, that that we don't just pretend it didn't happen. We didn't have one and just try to move on with life. So the word honoring is what kind of shook me back and made me think, maybe I should think about doing this. (laughs) 
So I really appreciate you saying that <laughs> because I was, I was like, no, I, I don't think I'm ready. I, I, I can't. I don't want to go back there because honestly, yeah. even the day of my surgery, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I hope I made the right decision. And that was the day of the surgery. Mm. And I had to tell myself again, look, it's the day of your surgery. You've had a month. You know, you've waited around for 10 years. Stop it. I literally had to talk to myself about that. And I remember an episode I did with a woman who is in her 70s, who had a hysterectomy in her 30s, never having had children. And I'm going to remember to put that link in the show notes too. But I remember her saying the same thing. She's like, Sevilla, I had 10 years to try. My husband and I tried for 10 years. If it was going to happen, it would have happened. And so when she said that, I remember thinking, wow, that's making me think back to 2011 when I told myself the same thing. I had 10 years for this to work out. And yes, I know, like the woman I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. who got her child after 20 years, I, I know those things are possible. But the fact is, we all have our own individual paths to walk. Mm-hmm. We have our own physical and medical issues. And one of the things my OBGYN told me was, Sevilla, I know this is not the outcome you wanted, but you will have an exponentially better quality of life after you do this. Yeah. And I think that's a very important thing to hold on to as well. Yes, definitely. Well, as we close out here, is there anything that we did not discuss that you want to be sure to tell the world? Because you are speaking to the world right now. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, we covered so, so much. One of the things I want to encourage people is to just be gentle with yourself. It's, I spent so much time and I know other women have done the same beating myself up berating myself belittling myself for my past for being childless for not being able to conceive with my husband it had to be my fault and I was just this rubbish person who made the worst decisions I could have ever done in my life and reaching out and getting the support really helped me to one, I'm like writing letters because I wrote a letter to my younger self as well, mm. forgiving her for the decisions that she made in the past. I told her that, you know, this wasn't shameful. This was just her not knowing what to do. This was just her looking after herself and looking after her unborn children because she wanted the best for them. So I just want to encourage people to be gentle, to reach out and get the self-compassion. Kirsty Neff has a great book on self-compassion. Jodie's book, Living a Life Unexpected, is great as well. My book, Dreaming of a Life and Lived. There are stories, there is help out there just to help you work your way through this grief and navigate your way to finding peace with where you're at now. What was the name of that first person that you mentioned? Kirsteen Neff. I'll put a link in the show notes for that then. N-E-F-F? N-E-F-F, yeah. Okay. All right, I'll do a search for her and put that in the show notes. And I'll add my name to the list in that I have a 31-day devotional on the shop tab of my website for anyone that's interested. It comes in um, ebook version and a hard copy. It's just a 31-day soft cover book that is a devotional. It goes through 31 days of me trying to encourage you, like you say, Yvonne, to take care of yourself and be kind to yourself because childlessness, yes, we do blame ourselves. We do feel like failures. Mm. I mean, a failure of not 
getting to meet Mr. Wright and the failure of not having a child, that's a double failure that I had to fight off and realize that I'm a whole person all by myself and I'm blessed even if I am single and childless, I'm still blessed. Everybody on this planet has a right mm -hmm. to be here. And so I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's, this was such a wonderful and beautiful conversation. Thank you so very much. You're so welcome and thank you too. You're welcome. And so guys, don't forget um, to check out the show notes. As you can tell, it, it will be chock full of information. Yvonne's contact information is there. There are links to news stories I found interesting. The link to my online store, chock full of great products created just for the childless, not by choice community. There's a, a tea public link where you can find mugs and swag and all kinds of stuff in there created just for the childless, not by choice community. That's going to help you with your conversation when you have that cute little purple mug in your hand drinking your coffee because you've faced the monster. So remember, subscription to the podcast is free. Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to the podcast, or just go to www.childlessnotbychoice.net and click on the podcast tab, and all of the episodes are right there. Special shout out to my sponsor, Morgan Air Conditioning, and thank you, Devoted Ministries, for the music that people here on the intro and outro of the podcast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, talk to you later. Bye.